Welcome back to another episode of my podcast, Booch Please. I don't know if you guys know the name. No, well, I haven't heard it. Actually, I like it. <clears throat> Thanks. So shout out to Kombucha. Uh, welcome to another episode. Today I have two very, very special guests. They don't usually do podcast interviews, but for me, they made an exception. So this is very, very uh, VIP <laughs> insider look at our public health system. We're going to talk about just some light dinner conversation topics like death and breathing <laughs> and uh, stressful jobs and working shift work, you know, the things that you want to talk about at like Thanksgiving dinner with your in-laws. <laughs> so yeah, without further ado, I'm going to have them introduce themselves. I have Eden and Carol here. They are both nurses with the UHN, which is a very big network here in Toronto for the hospitals. And they have very interesting jobs. I've known them for a few years. Carol, I'm new more newly friends with, but I feel like we've just immediately mesh. So I'm very excited to have them on this podcast. You guys go ahead and introduce a little bit about yourselves, what you do, awesome. what your uh, horoscope signs are, you know, <laughs> things like that. All the important juicy bits. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Carol and I actually went to school together for nursing. We did. Um, so we're both nurses. My name's Eden. I'm a nurse at Princess Margaret Hospital in Leukemia, Lymphoma, and Myeloma. And I have been nursing for around, it's going to be two years now, we're both coming, coming up in the fall. Um, which is super exciting. And then just recently I made the transition during the pandemic to supporting in the infection prevention and mm -hmm. uh, control role still within the UHN um, and really enjoying learning something new, but really excited to go back to oncology. <laughs> yeah, so you've had kind of a front row seat to what's been happening with with COVID? Yeah, with COVID. Yeah, uh, I think we both have. Right, we, we do. Yeah, definitely working in hospitals. We can't ignore it as much as some people who are at home. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a trying time to work in healthcare. And uh, I applaud all the people that are working in healthcare across the world right now because it is very stressful. Yeah, yeah that's we're for sure. definitely going to talk all about that. Yeah. My name's Carolyn. Um, <laughs> similar to Eden, we've been working a similar amount of time. I think you might have started a little bit before me, but we graduated yeah. at the same time. Um, we work in the same hospital at Princess Margaret. It's a cancer center here in Toronto. Um, and I work on the floor above her. Um, and it is 16P, which is a palliative oncology floor. And so I deal with patients who um, have a ter are terminal. So they're generally stage four, um, not curative. And we're there just to help people um, have the best quality of life possible, whether that is days, months, or years. We just want to really capitalize on quality of care instead of um, always treatment which can decrease quality of life so absolutely yeah, yeah I, I can't imagine like having to pass like while doing something as stressful as chemotherapy on your body and something that's so like draining what made you guys want to become nurses hmm. it is a very to me from yeah. as an outsider it seems like a very challenging career yeah um for me so I sort of contemplated the idea of nursing in high school. I think that's when a lot of us choose what we're gonna do with the rest of our life, or at least start that plan. Yeah. I thought about it. Um, I thought about nursing, I thought about medicine, um, I thought about physiotherapy. Um, I knew that I really wanted to work in a hospital, which I think is really strange, um, but <laughs> I've always felt comfortable in hospitals. Uh, I volunteered in the emergency room at my local hospital when I was in grade nine, and I did all that all the way through. So I knew that I wanted to be in a hospital. I just didn't know in what shape or form. So then I did my first degree at Western in Health Sciences, which gave me a good kind of understanding of public health, 
um, and also like physiology, anatomy, and psychology, that kind of thing. And then from that, I translated into research in a research role in Toronto, still within like public health and homelessness and housing instability. Um, but it wasn't hands-on enough. I'm a very kinesthetic person. <laughs> yeah. Can confirm. I can, yeah. <laughs> These guys can definitely confirm. Not being able to hug friends in the context of COVID has been really challenging for me. So I think after testing the waters in research, I was like, okay, I know that I like health. I know that I'm interested in like working with people. How can I do that? And so we entered the same program, which is an accelerated program for um, a bachelor's of science in nursing. And then was super happy with the result and working where I am. And I know that I made the right choice. So like yeah. Eden, I um, did a degree first that wasn't related to nursing. I was in gerontology, uh, which is the study of aging and getting older, right. but more the social science side of it mm -hmm. and how that um, impacts the, the population and policies and Okay, um, got it. I finished that four-year program but didn't feel inspired by it and didn't necessarily want to work in policy. Like Eden, I saw myself in a job that I was doing something hands-on. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, nursing, when I was going through high school and even that first degree, wasn't something that was on the forefront of my mind. It was um, something that was familiar to me because my mom was a nurse. Mm. Um, and so I always knew of nursing, mm -hmm. but she wasn't a nurse all throughout my life. She was, um, she stepped back from nursing uh, when my younger brother was born. So mm -hmm. I never really saw her doing the shift work or didn't really get a sense for what nursing was. Right. Um, but yeah, like like Eden, we kind of took a, a roundabout way of doing it, but I wouldn't trade that because yeah. um, we've learned a lot of bedside skills that you can't necessarily learn in a classroom, mm -hmm. in a four year program, just things that you, gain with maturity and experience, um, how to handle certain situations, and I think that we're better nurses for it. Yeah, and it makes you more empathetic towards patients, mm -hmm. which is something that gets overlooked in our public healthcare system. Is It's all kind of about volume, like let's get to yeah. as many people as we can, there's such a long like wait list, but a lot of the times the quality of care and like feeling empathized about is what a lot of people are missing and that's why hospitals generally aren't a good experience for mm -hmm. most people and yeah. they don't want to be there. And I think with um, us being newer nurses, maybe it sits a bit differently than if we were um, in this for many years, but one thing that was a huge adjustment for me um, was the the emotions that you put into a date to a full 12 hour shifts, mm -hmm. um, especially when you're trying to help patients um, outside of just medicine and be there, be there for them as a person and you get emotionally invested in making sure someone is okay. Mm -hmm. You get very tired from that. It's, it's yeah. like customer service when you're, it's like working a long 12 hour customer service shift with medical medical needs happening with like on the side. high stakes yeah you always, very high stakes you need to always kind of be be on you need to be smiling right. you need to make people feel comfortable in your presence that that idea of a therapeutic nurse client relationship mm -hmm. you have to work for that mm -hmm. and then i found okay. that at yeah when i was first starting it's improved a little bit but it, it's still something that i'm trying to improve on is when i would get home i would be so mini burnt out or exhausted from really giving my all mm -hmm. that when i went home um, to my partner, I would be a bit more reserved, not really wanting to talk about things, not quite as peppy, and that's something that we're, you have to balance, especially if you have a family at home, is mm. do you give your all and feel tired in the, in the evening when you go back to your family, or do you find some sort of happy medium with that? Do you just 
build up resilience and you find the ability to do both at the same time. And I think that's, especially for me, only being in this for a year and a half. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it'll take a long well time. Mm -hmm. Well said. And I don't think a lot of people, I mean, I know quite a few nurses. I don't think all of them are quite as like self-aware in terms of taking care, care of their mental health. Like yeah. they don't realize just how draining their job is mm -hmm. until maybe they hit that point, that threshold for burnout. And by that point, it's a little bit too late. Like it takes you so long to just recover from that. But in the meantime, you still have to work. You still have to show up for your patients. So yeah, would you say that's like the most challenging part of your job then to create separation between who you are and who you are at work? It's definitely a factor. Yeah. I wouldn't say, I couldn't necessarily label one hardest thing about the job because it does change day to day. Yeah. There's no shift that's, 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 that's yeah. similar yeah. or identical. Um, you might be like mentally drained from a day and then you might be emotionally drained from a day mm -hmm. and then sometimes you're both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just more physically drained as oh, well. Yeah. yeah, it's challenging. Yeah, I think it's very common for not just in nursing but in a lot of careers for people to work there for... 10, 20 years, and then just become so jaded yeah. and apathetic towards yeah. the like nuances of other people's experience as a result of their jobs. Because you're not getting, again, it comes back to like, my needs aren't getting met, so how can I really empathize and be present for you and to care about you if in the back of my head someone's like, oh, well, I didn't get the food that I wanted. But in the back of your head, you're like, I haven't had my break yet. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes it's like really The resentment like, like really reads. Yeah, and so it's so important to take care of yourself so that you can actually be like, I'm sorry, instead of in the back of your head be thinking about <laughs> what you want. Yeah, or I think what you want to say. Yeah. <laughs> Have a little bit of a filter. Yeah. Um, I think part of the challenge of that for some people is advocacy for themselves, mm. especially working in a unit with other nurses, being someone who's less senior or like having been in that unit for as long it's hard to speak up and be like hey i haven't had a break yet and mm -hmm. it's been a 12 hour shift yeah you know um so what are some advice that you think you can offer to someone who's brand new to all of this in, in terms of speaking up and advocating oh my gosh i'm so passionate about advocating <laughs> i know that's <laughs> communicating your needs without coming across as like demanding or or just unthoughtful or inconsiderate like selfish I think yeah. that's what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. I think you do it in a way where you inspire other people to then be like oh yeah I could ask for things like that too like that's very inspiring so anyway think, listen up <laughs> no oh my god <laughs> I'm trying to say I don't think I have one hot tip but I think mm -hmm. something that I like to say to people is you're allowed to ask and they're allowed to say no. I think I hear myself say that very frequently to people. So actually just getting comfortable with voicing what that need is. Um, and I think especially for nurses, what I realized is if you can't advocate for yourself, how the hell are you going to advocate for your patients? Mm. That's something that you need to learn really quickly. Yeah. And I think I'm really grateful, like Carol said earlier, that you know I didn't come out of high school and move right into this this incredibly challenging profession and then move straight into a job. I've had periods of time where I've had to reflect on my life. I've had periods of time that were really quite challenging and I had to look at my behaviors and say, where can I take responsibility for getting myself in these challenging situations? 
Um, and then take that and be able to say like, okay, I understand myself. I get myself. I can advocate for myself now. And mm-hmm. then if I feel comfortable doing that, then I'm definitely going to be able to do that for someone else. He's a nurse. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of these patients, they're so ill. They don't know how the hospital system works. Yeah. And sometimes because there's so many of them, they just become a number. So it really is up to you guys to speak up for them and be like, hey, this, this thing that just happened isn't ethical. It's not humane. Mm-hmm. They yeah. deserve better. Yeah. And part of that, like you said, is asking for yourself too. Like I think leading with curiosity is really important. So instead of just assuming that something's happening and somebody's against you, I think mm-hmm. one of the greatest ways that you can advocate is to just ask questions and to just seek clarity. And then once you get that answer, then you can act on it and you can say, oh, well, I don't think this is right. But how can you advocate if you don't have a clear picture of what's going on? Yeah. So just asking really good questions and leading with curiosity, not with like aggression, because That's that will always see. get somebody's yeah. back up. And you relay that in your, not just your questions, how you word things, but your tone and your You're body. good at that. You're super good at that. Mm-hmm. That means a lot because I was just going to say that I feel like sometimes I'm the contrast to Eden where... I'm someone who takes things very personally and I get very, I'm very afraid of confrontation. Um, mostly because I don't like inconveniencing people. I don't like people not liking me and I don't like the idea of upsetting someone else. Um, Mm -hmm. so that is a barrier that keeps me from often asking for things Mm -hmm. or telling, speaking out against injustices because Mm -hmm. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be, um, embarrassed mm-hmm. but so yeah I've, I'm the type of person that when I'm trying to ask something of someone I always find that my heart starts racing my throat mm-hmm. closes up I just I would rather avoid confrontation at all costs yeah. but I'm getting better at it and especially in nursing you have to get better at it because like Eden said um, patients health safety and lives are sometimes on the line so you need to be able to put aside my own ego and my own fears and say, no, this, I don't think this is right. Or I need to speak up about this to someone who, um, I might, wouldn't normally go up to. And, and yeah. there's some intimidating people that you meet in hospitals. Sometimes yeah. uh, there's a lot of ego. And sometimes <laughs> you just have to be like, yeah, I'm going in. <laughs> Hold my beer. <laughs> Hold my beer. go. I was going to say, it's definitely very relatable in a nutrition setting too. I think a lot of people feel this sense of anxiety and fear around confrontation or saying no. Yeah. And so in social settings, especially, you know, to their families or to people that they really respect, their parents-in-law or their older siblings or their spouses, families or whatever, when they're offered food or treats, they're like, I can't say no. Like that would be disrespectful to them. Yeah. So again, going back to what you guys said, it's about leading with curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. Give, give them options. Be like, is it okay if I take one home and I don't eat one right now? Mm-hmm. You know, offering alternatives rather than just saying no. Mm-hmm. Or if you really don't want another fucking cookie or cupcake or whatever, take home lasagna, which who doesn't want? <laughs> but if you're like truly, you know, on this health journey and you want to cut out things like that, then you have to learn to advocate for yourself and you have to communicate it in a way where the other person understands it's not malicious. It's not a disrespectful, um, kind of rejection. It's just that you have goals and you want to abide by them and you want to commit to them and you want to show yourself that you can do this. And I think a lot of the times people respect you more for it. I don't know if you found that, but speaking of, like people respect you more because you're able, like they see that you're able to advocate for yourself and that invites them to do the same. 
for themselves in, a, in another way. Maybe it's not in a hospital setting. Maybe it's at home when they're with their kids or with their spouses. Sometimes you can actually get not, not a great reaction. Mm-hmm. And like with some introspection, I've realized that that might be that person lashing out because they're upset that they can't say no. Oh, beautiful point. Maybe they're upset that they haven't been able to do the same thing in the past. Right. That's not on me. Yeah. Like, like this girl wants example. a break. I've been working for 20 years and yeah. I haven't been able to get a break. And you're ultimately, it has nothing to do with you asking for a break. It has yeah. everything to do with their lives. And totally. yeah, for those of you guys who've never read the book, The Four, Admi- the Four Agreements, The Four Amendments, <laughs> that's the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna cut that out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is that my conversion? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> the Four Agreements. So if you guys haven't read the book, The Four Agreements at Home, one of the four agreements that you have to make to yourself in order for you to live a really full life is to accept the fact that nothing anyone does or says has anything to do with you. And that's not like a diss to you. It's just so that. much issue with that. Like, yeah. I, like I do believe that concept, but yeah. I have, have such a hard time remembering that and living my life by yeah that. because really you could you could someone could cut you off on the road and you'd be like well like what is it about me like why does everyone hate me today but just remember that person's probably in a really big rush their wife could be going into labor you exactly. know or their kids yeah. are in trouble or whatever it is like it has nothing to do with what's going on in your life but we have as humans this way of confirming our beliefs about ourselves like anything that happens exactly anything that happens around us we're like see i was right you know if you hate yourself if you have the self-loathing quality if you feel unattractive if you don't like your body you have weird relationship with food as soon as someone rejects you quote unquote in any small way you're like well it's because they think i'm ugly fat not worthy whatever it is yeah and and instantly internalized exactly and that's so toxic because it's not true yeah a lot of the times there's so many things happening behind the scenes in people's lives that we don't know about or see and it really has nothing to do with us well let's talk about some like positive things about your work like what do you love about your jobs what what sets your hearts on fire when you're at work i love the people i work with a lot and that's really important especially as a new nurse, because you want to feel supported. It's really scary knowing that you can make a mistake and that could impact someone's health or life. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you just we grapple with on a day-to-day basis. And so just having people around you that support you and you know you feel comfortable that you can ask questions with and not right. have someone look at you like, you don't know this. Mm-hmm. Like, you never feel like you're asking a stupid question, even if it's so basic. Right. Um, and to add to that, you're not just dealing with the patients. You're mostly dealing with their family so it's not just one person that you're handling or trying to support you're trying to support an entire family sometimes and that's a lot of people to to take care of it's it's hard to explain with palliative patients and people that are at a point in their life more or less where they have come to terms with their illness and they're dying you you have some very interesting conversations that I don't think a lot of 27 year olds would have had. And mm-hmm. it's, it's given me a perspective on life and death and everything in between that, that I wouldn't have had without going into this. So those small little conversations that happen in just a couple seconds within the 12 hour shift, yes, I find I really, really take home and I, I, one thing can happen. I could have a horrible shift where I just feel all out of whack. I don't feel like I'm being productive, but I can have those small little interactions go home and feel full. 
feel like I've done something. Yeah, and beautiful. And that's, I think, what I really, really like about bedside nursing in general. Yeah. For a lot of people, it takes a lot of stability and sense of security within ourselves to be able to open up our hearts and connect with someone else. Because connection isn't a one-way street. You can care for someone as much as you want, but if they're not willing to reciprocate, then that's a dead end, right? And same thing for nurses. If a patient's trying to connect with you and they're just not in a place where they're able to receive connection, that can be really painful and scarring for the patients. Yeah. Yeah. That's always something that I find difficult is when, because we went into this profession trying to make a difference for people and Mm -hmm. use our empathy. And I just want to make people happy, essentially, at the end of the day. And like, if you really put a label on it. I, I want people to be happy around me. And I'm happier when people are happy around me. Um, I'm like an emotional sponge. <laughs> and so when I find it particularly difficult when I have a patient who, for no, no reason to do with me, is just not at that point where they can be happy. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't have to feel like they need to be happy. They are in a very hard place. Yeah. And I can't relate to that. I can't put myself in their shoes. I can't I can't sympathize with it. Mm-hmm. I haven't been there. And so being okay with yeah, just supporting someone in whatever that looks like and not mm-hmm. necessarily being this peppy cheerleader cheerleader on the side and, and kind of um, adapting how you nurse and how you care for someone who might not be wanting it right yeah, now. Yeah, you kind of have to meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Totally. And part of that is assessing the situation. I think even for my profession with nutrition, not everyone knows how to talk about food or their relationship with food or what they think of their bodies. So yeah. <laughs> if I were to just come right out of the gate and be like, tell me everything about what you think or what you know about nutrition, they would be very overwhelmed and yeah. they'll likely close up and not feel like comfortable to share. And so read the room. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Reading the room is a big part of it. So my next question would be, how do people typically handle something as grave and serious as death or terminal illness i don't i think we shouldn't answer that oh i think people should understand that death and the emotions around grief are not one size fits all yeah and that you shouldn't stigmatize yourself if you're feeling one certain way about something you see somebody responding to death in a certain way because we've we've seen all spectrums and I think probably the biggest thing is to, not the biggest thing, I can't say there's the biggest thing, but just seeing people's responses to death and the conversation around it, what I can speak to is sometimes on my unit, death isn't, um, when a death happens or a patient goes into the ICU and we know that they are in quite critical condition, um, you get this sense of feeling from the family and from the patient that they wish that conversations around death and dying happen sooner. Mm. That it is a very stigmatized topic, that mm. we don't like to talk about it. There is a lot of fear around it. There's a lot of ideas about how things should look and right. what we should respond with. And I think it's important for people to know that this is a conversation. There is not one way that you right. want to respond to death and dying. Yeah, I think I didn't want you guys to categorize it like these are the four ways that yeah. <laughs> people deal the with death. Of grief. No, yeah. not at all. I but, think what I wanted to highlight was just that there are so many different ways. Yeah. These are some common ways that probably you didn't even consider mm-hmm. are possible. And if you're someone who's struggling with that, great, you know that you're you're not alone. And if you're someone who feels like you're not, you know, grieving in that way or dealing with death in that way, that's also okay. Yeah. That yeah. it's different. 
however you're dealing, you're dealing. Yeah. You're doing the best way that you can in mm -hmm. that moment. And I think as nurses, we probably seen the important role of support mm. and like you were saying with nutrition just being able to ask those questions to gain that trust from people to be able to share and to collect what they think about the topic yeah there are definitely elements of being like a nutritionist or a nutrition coach like coaching is really what I do because coaching isn't me giving you a plan and yeah. telling you this is right this is wrong it's me like trying to coach the answers out of yes you so yes. that you're the one making decisions and she is so good at this oh, <laughs> now it's time to hide me yeah. <laughs> Here. No, it's so true. Oh, thank I, you. I think kind I of personal it. and professional, like you are so good at having those conversations and you are one of the best coaches. I you're the best coach I've ever met. Wow. I think you might be I'll take that I think I've said to several people, you're the best listener I've ever yes. met. Yes. I can act coach for yeah. that as well. You guys are so sweet. Very good at active. We were not paid to say paying them dumplings. But one thing I was going to say right. earlier is that um, there are actually a lot of parallels with, there are some parallels with difficult conversations like death and dying and nutrition. It's all mm -hmm. about things that you're brought up thinking certain things, whether it's culturally, societal, huge, and you have these preconceived ideas of what these difficult topics are, and that will influence how comfortable you are talking about things. Like I grew up not talking or thinking about death. I came mm -hmm. from a very sheltered family life where we didn't really mm -hmm. see death up front. Yeah. But I'm a huge advocate for having those difficult discussions about death and dying because it's one of the universal things that we all go through. We're it's all born, we're all unavoidable. Yeah. yeah. And it just, it baffles me why it's not talked about oh as comfortably, but it's because of this unknown and everyone yeah. has these different ideas of what it is and everyone has different experiences with death and dying right. that may have trauma associated with it. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult to navigate when, like with nutrition, you don't know where that person is. Yeah. You don't know what trauma is associated with that difficult discussion. Yeah. Does this person have body dysmorphia? Does this person have an eating disorder? Um, have they been brought up feeling shame about eating and diet? Mm -hmm. Did this person lose someone very special to them? Do they have trauma associated with that? Mm -hmm. Were they in a car accident? It's all things that us in our profession are trying to sift through in a safe space yeah. and figure out where people are in that conversation mm -hmm. and how ready they are to have that conversation. And regardless of your race, your age, your gender, mm -hmm. we're all, you know, going to meet our end at, at one point. And I think what a lot of people think about death is if we talk about death, it diminishes the life that we have. Mm -hmm. Like it means that we're taking away from our living days. But what it really does is it contrasts it and it makes it more vibrant. Cause when you have like, just all whiteness, like on a white wall with no like specks of it, then you kind of lose that se the sense of like how white that wall is until you put like a big brush stroke of black paint on it. And then you're like, wow, the contrast is very stark yeah. and it makes your life more vibrant. There's a couple resources that I've read and watched during this journey of getting to this place. Cause it, it took some time. It's not yeah. just something you're immediately comfortable with. And yeah. there are some days when I'm afraid. I'm, I'm yeah, not I'm working on it too. Yeah, definitely not. A really good book that I read is called um, "Talking About Death Won't Kill You." Mm, great title. <laughs> Please do. And um, it's a very good title. Another one is a it's a TED Talk by B.J. Miller, 
and I forget what it's called. When you identify your fears, you're able to move past them. Right? Yeah. And death is a huge fear for a lot of people, yeah. but we don't talk about it. So if you don't identify it, how are you supposed to live free of it? Yeah. Right. My experience with death is very similar to yours. Like I remember getting a phone call when I was six years old. My parents were just like, your grandma passed away. She was like um, the grandma that I was closest to. She really helped raise me. And that to me, like, obviously I was very shocked and I cried and I was very sad about it, but we were literally so far away from each other. She was like in another province. I was living in China at the time that I didn't, it just, it was easy to almost forget about. Now that I'm an adult, I look back on that time and I'm like, oh, I wish I honored her more. I wish I had that understanding that she was really gone and that there was no way for me to ever experience her essence again in person and and grieving is like so complicated and it's a process yeah that's true my my gaga passed away over 10 years ago that's my maternal grandmother and she passed away in england i was so close with her even mm-hmm. just talking about it now chokes me up yeah. because there's so much it's a process like my mom explained it to me she's just like it's just kind of something that you'll oh, it's just like a little thing that'll follow you. Yeah. It's just something that will follow you your entire life. And sometimes you're going to unwrap that, look at it, and then you're going to be like, okay. And then you wrap it back up, you put it away. But it's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, my most recent touch with death in the family was my grandfather passed away in the fall. That's okay. I believe in vulnerability. I'm living my values. <laughs> um, and he decided to die by maid just medically uh, assisted assistance in death and that was quite an experience um so shout out to everyone who has the courage to talk about this topic (laughs) it's not easy um but it's really important and when people make decisions about how they want to die when you're there with them and you support them through it they love you oh my gosh yeah Yeah. you're doing the best thing that you could do for that person in that moment especially if they were in pain, which I know your grandfather was. Thank you for sharing that, by yeah. the way. Um, yeah, I, I know that he must have felt so lucky to be surrounded by loved ones in his final moments. And it, it wasn't easy for my family to, my, like, my dad was just like, I can't believe that he's deciding this. Like, it's really hard for, for somebody when they don't understand it, but I feel very privileged in our work that we've gotten to, to be part of deaths that have ended in euthanasia or yeah. medical assistance in dying. So that demystified it for me. Yeah. And then I took that professional experience um, mm-hmm. and ease and had conversations with my family so that people felt comfortable being there for that day. And I think too, like death behind closed doors isn't necessarily natural. If we think about like the way that our cultures have evolved in certain ways, mm-hmm. like Grandparents frequently live with families and in, in, maybe not in my culture that I grew up with, but I, I know in other cultures. Mm-hmm. And so just having that conversation with my family and my grandpa saying, nope, I, we don't let dogs suffer. Why that let me suffer? I want to, I want to die. He advocated for himself. He advocated for himself. Go grandpa. Yes. And he died at home and he was surrounded by everybody that he loved. And yeah. that's honestly one of the best deaths I've ever seen. And it's because we talked about it and we have legislation now that allows people to die the way that they want to if they see a foreseeable end. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that, do you find that having those conversations with your perspective on medical assistance and dying with your family helped? Yeah, 
Did it help during and did it help afterwards with, with your family? Yes, um, it helped before, it helped during, and it helped after. It had an impact, yeah. and people can be scared shitless, as mm -hmm. a lot of us are, to talk about a lot of these topics, but all that we can do is just support each other, bring knowledge to the table, and... That's just it. I yeah. think when you educate, you're bringing relief. A lot of us don't know how to talk about it because we don't know how to use the words. Oh, I, I can't find the words mm -hmm. to describe what I'm feeling, to describe what it is I believe or think, mm -hmm. or to just even convey the level of like desperation or sadness that I feel and when you are able to share with them your experience they're able to pick out parts of it where they identify like, that is how I feel that's how you word it mm -hmm. and that really helps to make sense of this whole mystery yeah. for them too there's one thing that you said Eden that reminded me um the idea of grief as this you're living this box and grief and the pain is this button and within that box of your life, you have this ball that's constantly moving around mm -hmm. and it has that button. And when you first experience this loss or whatever sort of thing that causes grief, let's say it's in this instance of death, mm -hmm. um, the box is so small and no matter what, every single day, almost every minute, almost every second, that ball's moving and it keeps hitting that button and it hurts. It hurts mm -hmm. so bad and then you you cry, you can't possibly process anything and it's just, it's raw emotion and grief. Mm -hmm. As time passes, that button is still there and that button feels the same way when it's hit. Mm -hmm. The box just gets bigger. Mm -hmm. And as the ball goes around, it hits it just less often. Mm -hmm. When it does hit it, it doesn't mean that it feels easier. Yeah you still have those moments where you are grabbing a pillow and screaming into it and you feel the same way as if this person died yesterday mm -hmm. and it, you can't believe that it's been three years and yeah. you are just not understanding why you're still feeling this the same way that you're, you're transported back to that exact moment because people tell you like time makes things better time makes things easier this will get <laughs> easier in time everything. right and it doesn't and that under undermines that grief that person is feeling right mm -hmm. now three years later saying why am i still feeling this why does it hurt so bad people say it should get easier am i not grieving properly am i not healing properly what's wrong with me exactly yeah am i weak for feeling this much grief yeah. all these times and that's, this time later. that's problems with these cliches. Like we're human. We just want to put things in neat, neat little boxes, categorize, relate to something. And when it's within our control. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't work that way. No, exactly. Emotions <laughs> don't work that way. Your brain doesn't work that way. Yeah. I think what, um, like a concept that I'm kind of grappling with right now is this idea of unconditional love, mm -hmm. that that love transcends space and time and Therefore, it's infinite. It like any time you revisit that love, it hits you the same. Like this sounds stupid, but I had a childhood cat growing up, and I had to put her down um, about four, four, almost five years ago now, and that was incredibly traumatic for me because I was an only child. She was the only friend I had, and um, she died in a very just sad, sad way, traumatic way, and that. Like, even now, sometimes I have dreams about her where she comes yeah. and visits me. And it sounds crazy, but it I still wake up and I'm, like, in tears because I miss her so much. You know, it just takes you right back to being that 21-year-old girl who was, like, holding her, her like, 
cat yeah. who was passing away. And that was your family. Like she, she, she was like, part of the family. Become our family. Absolutely. But like it just goes to show that like this love is so unconditional that regardless of when I revisit it, it always conjures up the same feeling of just like adoration for her and just sense of loss because she's gone. There's nothing that'll fill that void. Mm-hmm. So don't try to. Um, but it just over time your box gets bigger and that void in comparison will feel smaller mm-hmm. to the rest of your life. Yeah, that's an awesome uh, mm-hmm. image I yeah. think, for people. Yeah, I um, hope. Sorry, for me at least, um, when my mom died, I wanted to find something to to relate to. I wanted to, so I read books, I watched you wanted movies. to make sense of it. Yeah, and I wanted to, to see, not necessarily where I was in the grieving process or get ideas, but I just wanted to see that this was a shared experience. Mm-hmm. And so I started reading books about from authors whose mothers had died and um, started watching movies with the mother that has died. I just wanted to see themes and things that I was feeling in other things. And so I found, when I found this, it so perfectly encompassed how I felt about grief and how I was processing the death of my mother. And like I read it and I just... I was crying because I was like, this is, this is what I'm, what's happening to me. And this, this makes sense. And this is okay. Mm-hmm. Because we're just, we want to not be alone. And I think people want to know that they're not stuck mm-hmm. in that one phase. Yes. And it's not a phase. It's just a button that's yeah, like process. hit over and over. Your box is still expanding, whether or not you feel like it, as long as you're taking the steps to process your grief, to talk about it, mm-hmm. to still do things that make your life meaningful and purposeful. Huge. Yeah, as long as you're doing that, your box is still expanding. So don't worry that that pain is still so fresh or feels so real and current and recent. That's out of your control, unfortunately. In a way, you want it. You kind of want it to. Mm-hmm. I don't... I would... I can't change the fact that my mom died, but I also wouldn't want to not feel this pain and grief that I feel right now. I don't want to be healed because that means that I'm not remembering her Mm -hmm. and I want to, I feel like the more that I'm hurting represents the amount of love that I had for her and the amount of love she had for me. Well, okay. I guess one curiosity that I have is, do you remember the first time where you felt sort of the reality of your nursing jobs? Like the reality being that you can't save everyone. I mean, for you. (laughs) (laughs) That is already decided for me. No, but you, like, you can't. Oh, man, or last year, Karina. Just one. I just like to say one. Oh, my God. That's right. Dark nursing humor. (laughs) Sometimes, like, oh, God. We cope with with death and dying with, I think, a lot of lightness. Yes. You have to contrast it. I've, like, developed a very sick but funny sense of humor <laughs> surrounding death and dying, surrounding the sick, and a lot of things I would not repeat outside of the hostel setting or outside of healthcare professionals. Yeah, let's not do that. Because it's just get canceled. <laughs> but it's just it's it's Reported. a way of normalizing it, right? Because yeah. everything else in life, you it's try and bring some. Yes, you bring some light to because that's right. the only way you can cope with it. And getting through a twelve-hour shift where multiple people might die on my shift is mm-hmm. just you have you can't. 
you can't succumb to just thinking about death. Even though it's right there in front of you, you have to step aside and joke with your coworkers, even though that seems bizarre and weird. Mm-hmm. And you just had a patient die in the other room and you go to the nursing mm-hmm. station and you just have, you you try and find some normality in it because sometimes it is so hard to process that, that person that you were just caring for is dead, that there's a dead body in that room. How can that be? Where is that person now? Is there a soul? You just, your mind is going through so many things yeah. that you can't sort through on a 12 hour shift because yeah. you have work to do. And me like being someone who doesn't work in a hospital or as a nurse, I don't have to think about that because yeah. it's not visually there to remind me. Yeah. I feel very privileged that this, outlook is a blessing because I'm living my life in a way and it's, it sounds so cliche and it's going to no matter how I phrase it but being so close to people who are dying and talking to people in their final moments and having them reflect on things and tell you what they wish they did differently mm. makes you go about your day-to-day life completely differently it makes you it makes you stop and smell the roses because when you just cared for a, a 28 year old that just died and me being 27, it makes it puts yeah. on the brakes and saying, okay, is what is this argument I'm having with someone really, really it. that important? Is mm-hmm. is this is me getting upset about being stuck in bumper to bumper traffic really worth getting upset about? Mm-hmm. And it, it's given me a perspective that, granted, I don't have it all the time. I do get upset in traffic. I'm not, I'm yeah. not perfect. Yeah, I'm not a saint. Yeah. <laughs> but it gives me yeah. the perspective of taking a breath and saying it doesn't matter and there's very few things that do matter and it's it is connection and it's love and friends and family and those are the main themes that i see over and over again in people who are dying Mm. whether it's them or their family it just it flips things yes and as drake said you only live once yolo (laughs) (laughs) and we can confirm that is true Um, (laughs) as a medical professional (laughs) the tally is in (laughs) yep that was it it. and we're we're gonna edit that out (laughs) that's not gonna make it might be a behind the scenes bts bloopers (laughs) talking about grieving and death i know that a lot of people out there have grieved i myself personally have done it where i've relied on things like comfort foods and you know carbohydrates to really bring me that endorphin rush that dopamine release mm-hmm. and that sense of security and control yes. because when you're grieving you just nothing is within your control you don't know when you're going to experience those waves of emotions mm-hmm. and so what you can control is when you feel good and that's immediately after eating foods like mac and cheese pizza spaghetti whatever it is um and over time these foods stop becoming comforting and they become more like addictions, right? They're like, like a medication. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. You're like numbing out, escaping from dealing with your emotions. So that's like super tricky to navigate too. Yeah. And that's going to be on another podcast episode where I address comfort eating, binge eating and habits like that, that kind of start to form. But just know that if you're someone who's struggling with that right now, the problem isn't that, you know, that it doesn't start with the food is what I'm trying to yeah. say. It's not just the food. It doesn't end with the food. The food is going to be one component of it, but you also have to deal with like the larger issue here is mm-hmm. that you're trying to escape from something that you have no control over and it's not productive for you to band-aid the solution with food or drugs or alcohol, whatever exactly. it is that people yeah. use. Don't be scared to... Well, be scared. Like my one of my, I think, biggest values in life is courage. 
Mm -hmm. And you're never going to be fearless about everything, but feel the fear and do it anyways. Mm -hmm. So be scared to open up, be scared to get vulnerable, but know that if you're around the right people, you have the right people listening, that you can share what you need to say and someone Mm -hmm. will hear it. And that will be a weight of relief. Yeah, that is something that is learned though, right? This idea of feeling fear and that automatically means inaction, yeah. a lack of action. But yeah. it's not true. You can dissociate those two thoughts or yeah. those two feelings or that, that feeling and that action. Even though you feel fear, you can still do things. You can take baby steps. You can take smaller steps towards whatever thing that you're afraid of too. Um, and I think that's a really good way to kind of end this, wrap up this podcast with a little bow. I want to thank you guys both for sharing your personal experiences professional experiences <laughs> gracing us with your we knowledge and presence <laughs> first podcast. Yeah, we, we only had to edit 75 percent <laughs> but no thank you guys so much and if you guys want to uh follow these lovely ladies you can find them on instagram yep. how would you like to be plugged I would not like to be plugged. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, you can find them on my Instagram. <laughs> Shameless self-plug, which is at kombuchamommy, kombucha.mommy. And Caro, do you want to share your Instagram or are you like... Oh, that's fine. I don't really... It's at Caro Caro. Caro <laughs> Caro. Yay. All right. I'm I'm at the sweet E, right? But you can follow me. But if I haven't met you in real life, I probably won't follow you right away. So just she's gonna have to investigate. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have you are meet you. She's gonna you are. Spin number. Uh, yeah. <laughs> credit credit so scores. It's a Nigerian print scam. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, before you guys go, we're gonna do a little rapid fire question. Oh. So first thing that comes to your mind. All right. You ready? Yeah. Wait. Who's going first? Um, it doesn't matter. You guys can yell the answers out at the same time. Blue. Okay. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Where were you born? Well, Ottawa. Ooh, Ontario Bay. What up? Uh, what is your favorite animal? Frog? Panda? Wow, that was very strange. I did not expect frog from Me you. neither. I've I never thought you would have said like golden retriever. That's the that's the animal that everyone says I am. But I oh, love yes. frogs. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um how do you take your coffee? Black. Uh soy milk. Oh, okay, all right. Cool, 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 cool. Uh what's your favorite sport to watch? Soccer. Gymnastics. Oh yeah, that's also a great one. <laughs> it's like edge of my seat. <laughs> Is she gonna make it? <laughs> um, what would be your last meal on earth? Oh, I talked about this the other day. Mashed potatoes and gravy. Nice. Big bowl of it. Yeah. And just, stuffing. Just plant your face yeah, in yeah. it. Use it as a pillow. <laughs> Mine would be fried rice. Fried rice. <laughs> Shrimp fried rice. Oh my gosh. Fried rice. I love fried rice. Wow, that's yeah. very, um, I, we are sisters. <laughs> All of us, clearly. <laughs> love it. Uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? Part of Your World. Oh, oh good one. Um, oh my gosh, what is it? It's by Bonnie. Uh, Let's Give Them Something to Talk About by Bonnie Raitt. Just totally shift my Asian cred to being so white. <laughs> To like straight from <laughs> Alabama. Country, <laughs> Love it. Um, what's your favorite place you've ever visited? Oh, like damn. a specific place. It could be like down to like the name of a park in a particular city or whatever. Ooh, I'd say um, Tioman Island. It's a little island in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And it's where um, my partner and I first kind of met. And oh, I'm so romantic. Cuties. I would say anywhere.
anywhere on the Bruce Peninsula in Ontario mm. on Georgian Bay. We're so lucky. We're, we're yeah. living in Toronto, so Ontario, lucky. in yeah. Canada. It's taken me some time to appreciate that, but I, I Ontario is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, we have some beautiful sunsets, and you can watch like the um, the Northern Lights in Ontario. You just have to drive really up north, but. Like, we have that accessible. You don't have to go to Iceland for that. You just go up north. And you don't need to go to the Caribbean to get turquoise clear water. You no, go to Georgia. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was there. Bluffs. Oh, <laughs> you just go to Lake Ontario? <laughs> I'm pretty sure the water's gray. Like, learning Exactly. Um, what's a quote that motivates you? Live fast, I am. I girls do I like that, bitches. <laughs> Um, yeah, feel the fear and do it anyways. That one wasn't actually my quote. I don't, um, happiness is only real when shared. Ooh, that's, that's like a going on. Super Train. Yep. (laughs) Christopher McCandless. That's cute. Um, if you weren't working in nursing, (laughs) what would you be doing? I'd be a lawyer. (laughs) Um, or I'd be a bioethicist. Wow. Um, what would I be doing? Lots of reading. That one. That's why I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> Too much reading, not enough feeling. So much reading. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I've thought about that. Maybe mm-hmm. it. I grew up kind of wanting to be a teacher. Um, I can see that. You'd be an awesome teacher. Thanks. I would trust so my friends with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank real. you. You're welcome. But I was thinking about this the other day. Like growing up, I remember seeing my teachers as like such cool, yes. like mysterious beings. And sometimes you would see them at the mall, like with their spouses, and you're what just like, what? You, you have a life outside of school? This you're is so strange. strange. School? And yeah. now I know people who are teachers. I'm like, you're, the same age you're as your teacher. literally a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't believe you're teaching kids. I don't know like what they're learning from yeah. you. I mean, you, you do not have your life together. Yeah. Thank you. You would be a great teacher. Um, okay. Favorite kombucha flavor you've ever tried, or a flavor combo you think I should try with kombucha? I have an answer for that. Okay. Um, my favorite kombucha flavor I have tried was actually made by you, and it blew me away. And it was the um, ginger cayenne, cayenne ginger. Ooh, you it like was, them spicy? It was like it was a slow build, yeah, which yeah, I yeah. which I liked. And it like oh, it, I love that. It was delicious. Ginger ginger cayenne. Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. That one was my I favorite. like to make that one in the winter time. Like that really warms you mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Um, mine is also uh, like completely honest one that you've made, and well, pretty much anything <laughs> for me. Anything with cardamom. Oh um, yes. Because it's just like such an important flavor, and it comes through. But I think it was like it was Asian pear and cardamom. Mmm. I love that one too. Have you ever crazy into a cardamom seed? Yes. Yeah, it's it very is, strong. It's probably like top five worst experience. It's very strong. You taste nothing else. <laughs> All right. Well, make sure you guys comment, share, review the podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves. We're doing peace signs for everyone who's not watching the video. <laughs>